Hello and welcome back to the Into the Adultverse podcast. Today's episode is part two in our two-part series on aging and longevity. We're going to be talking about longevity. More specifically, how do you actually live longer? What's the science behind that? So we hope you enjoyed our last conversation about aging and we hope you see how that kind of ties into this whole discussion on how humans can live longer. So see you on the other side. Life expectancy of an American born today averages 78.2 years. But this year, over 70,000 Americans have reached their 100th birthday. What the hell are they doing that the average American isn't? So welcome back, everybody, to the Into the Adultverse podcast. Uh, This is the sequel to the initial aging episode that we did last time. And today we're going to be sticking a little more to the science script and discussing more about some of the concrete uh, tools, habits, and practices, you know, that some of these populations are doing that have found uh, helpful to allow them to live statistically longer than the average person. Yeah. And I figured, you know, as in traditional into the adultverse spirit, we can start the episode off with another quote. So this one's from um, our boy, Benny Franklin. Um, one of the OGs, you know, one of the founding fathers. So he's he's a pretty sick yeah. guy. He says, a long life may not be good enough, but a good life is long enough. So, like, yeah, just That's a great quote. It's a nice little way to kind of set the mood for it. But yeah. Yeah. So today's episode, we're going to be focusing on the research done by the Blue Zones team. And we're going to be talking about what exactly are Blue Zones Um, How did they find the blue zones and what they've uncovered in their research? Mm -hmm. So just uh, briefly diving into it, the goal of the blue zones team was to kind of answer the question that I just mentioned. What is that person that's living to the age of 100 doing that the average American isn't? And their goal was to reverse engineer that question. So they teamed up with uh, National Geographic to find the world's longest lived people and study them. And they knew that most of the answers lied within their lifestyle envir- and environment be, uh, thanks to the Danish twin study, which you know established that only roughly 20% of how long the average person lives is dictated by genes, while the other mm-hmm. 80% is entirely up to something else. So with that kind of fueling their mission, they worked with a team of demographers to find pockets of people around the world with the highest life expectancy or with the highest proportions of people who reached the age of 100. And they found five places that met their criteria. Awesome. So those five places, you know, might surprise you a lot in terms of, you know, the diversity of people and the diversity of regions that are there. And it's curious because they're not all on one continent. They're not all, you know, one ethnicity or something like that. They're pretty diverse. So it just goes to show that, you know, it's not really specific genes or, you know, specific areas or even, you know, specific Uh, exact lifestyle choices, but rather these principles that really come into play. And so the five places that met their criteria, uh, number one, the Barbagia region of Sardinia, which is mountainous highlands of inner Sardinia, where it has the world's highest concentration of male centenarians. And centenarians are pretty much, you know, uh, people who reach 100 years old. The second one on the list is Icaria, Greece, an aging island with the world's lowest rates of middle age mortality and the lowest rates of dementia, which is huge, huge. Because, mm-hmm. you know, along with aging and along with longevity, you have to remember that, you know, you need a high quality of life. It's not necessarily, you know, getting Alzheimer's at 70 and living until you're 100 because it's not really, you know, a great life. Mm-hmm. 
Um, then there's the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, which has the world's lowest rates of middle age mortality and the second highest concentration of male centenarians. Then there's the Seventh Day Adventists um, in Loma Linda, California, which has the highest concentration of, of you know Seventh Day Adventists in the world, who live on average ten years longer than the North American counterparts. This is the one that surprised me most. I can't lie; I was not expecting California to be on this list, especially considering you know huge income inequality and horrible healthcare and things like that. But super, super curious, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the Seventh Day Adventists and how some of their beliefs and systems contribute to their longevity. And then finally, I think this one was kind of expected: uh, Okinawa, Japan, which has um, the high longest lived population in the world which is basically you know any female they're over 70 they have the highest um life expectancy average of any population in the world yeah and so and we'll dive into this a little bit more but unfortunately uh some of these places are being americanized and yes sir yeah as uh, and it, it's crazy how that's become a, a verb now you know the, that Please are becoming Americanized, and it's not necessarily. A <laughs> and it's not thing. a good verb. Yeah, it, yeah it's not a good verb. <laughs> um, the, the, a consequence of these places becoming Americanized is that um, some of the uh, dietary habits that we enjoy in the Western world are being adopted over there, and that's actually causing a decline in the general uh, quality of life that they're uh-huh. uh, experiencing. So that's tragic. But we'll dive into that yeah. in a little bit. So super interesting. They assembled the team assembled a team of medical researchers and anthropologists and demographers and epidemiologists to search for the evidence-based common denominators among all of these places and they were ident- able to identify uh nine different lifestyle habits of the uh longest lived healthiest uh people. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right into it. The first of those nine habits is that they move naturally. So the world's longest lived people don't pump iron and run marathons or join gyms. You know, instead, mm-hmm. they're living in environments that constantly nudge them into moving without even thinking about it. They grow mm-hmm. gardens and don't have any mechanical conveniences for home and yard work. So a consequence of this means that roughly every 20 minutes or so, they have an excuse to get up and get going. And that's that's the crazy thing to me is that that's all it takes. You know, when people are thinking about what it takes as far as exercise goes to become healthy, you know, a lot of people think, okay, I got to go out there. I got to be running uh, like right at the start of my day. Every time I go hit the Uh gym, I got to be benching a new PR and basically, you know, pushing themselves to like Ironman level physical feats. But that's not what it takes to build up a physical uh, a, a positive physical healthy aptitude because you know for from what we've seen is that even most of the benefit from running you can get from just walking and that walking generally suits a larger population you know the people who have joint pain um, for people who are a little more fragile and they can't really uh, definitely withstand the rigor that running takes on your body so mm-hmm. It's crazy when you put into perspective uh, when Dan Butner, he basically said that you can probably eliminate 20 to 25 percent of the obesity problem in America if they had designed their cities for human beings and not just cars. So getting people instead of yeah just hopping in the whip to go commute over to McDonald's, even just walking Mm -hmm. to that McDonald's can make a huge difference. 
Definitely. Uh, Dan Butner is the founder of the, you know, kind of power nine principles and, and how that goes into things. So it's, it's really interesting to see how his input kind of, I don't know, like 20 to 25%. That's a huge percentage of the obesity problem that could save a ton of lives. So that's really interesting. I think the other thing to note here is that I think in North America, we have typically an all or nothing sort of attitude towards this, where either you're fit and you're really into fitness and you go to gyms and you train for marathons, like you said, towards that Ironman physique, or you're completely sedentary. And I think what this allows people to do, this principle of moving naturally, is to realize that, you know, physical fitness is for everybody, regardless of ability, regardless of time, regardless of, you know, effort that they're willing to put mm-hmm. in. It's really about doing the small things and doing the small things consistently. And so, you know, kind of a tip that we can offer, I guess, is to, you know, to start moving naturally, consider making things a little bit more inconvenient for you. So, you know, take the extra trip up and down the stairs instead of loading things at the top or the bottom, you know, when, when you're loading your groceries into the car. Uh, you don't try and do it all in one trip. Walk a little bit mm-hmm. extra. Um, walk to your airport gate instead of taking the moving walkway. Um, you know, park a little bit further from the entrance when you go to a store. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, walk your dog, do your, own, do your own yard work, don't hire a gardener. Like small things like that where, you know, we've had things like electronics and power tools that have just allowed us to take the difficulty out of everything. Just make things a little bit harder, a little bit consistently harder. Take the stairs every once in a while and that will go pretty, pretty far for you. Yeah, and I mean, if you can afford it, uh, you know, a lot of people right now are kind of riddled with that work from home lifestyle and all the tools that takes. So if you can afford it, a a standing desk actually makes a huge difference. Um, Oh, huge. I've been using a standing desk for a while and I have to say that it sounds really pretentious to tell your friends you have a standing desk, <laughs> but I will say that it's well worth the laughs you get initially. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've actually converted a number of the haters to the standing lifestyle. So I will say that. <laughs> I mean, who's going to be the last one laughing when, you know, you're out here with a like a nice 90, uh, vertical posture and the, everybody else is out there, you know, with a 90 degree back. And... I don't know about v- vertical posture, but, you know, let me fix that real quick. <laughs> we can re-record this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we don't have the video for oh, this man. one, but yeah. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. There's no video. Okay, never mind, never mind. We're good. I'm back to slouchy. <laughs> so many health benefits, are, and it's it's so just from standing. You know, you wouldn't expect that, but it it yeah. can actually uh, lend itself, even honestly, to better work. I feel like I think better if I'm on my feet than if I'm just like yeah. slouching in a chair the whole time. Yeah, it's in the expression, eh? Like you're on your feet. So yeah, yeah. Think on, on your, your feet. feet on the ball. Yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And like one last point in this is, you know, I people who. I, and less of an issue now because you don't really have as many people in the gyms, especially because gyms are closed down now. But um, <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we've all seen people who go to the gym and they're just walking on the treadmill. And that's pretty much all they do, like the whole session. You know, at least they're making the effort, first of all. So th- yeah, given what we've learned about the benefits of simply just walking, maybe, you know, they're onto something that we're not. So just, yeah. uh, you know, just let them enjoy their little workout and uh, go about your day. Yeah, a little quick tip too, uh, before we move on to the number two, which which is a really, really cool topic too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started walking recently in quarantine and it astounded me how many calories you can burn. Like uh, a one hour walk, you know, for somebody who's uh, like 5'9 and 175 pounds, I don't know who that is. It could be another <laughs> guy, it could be me. But uh, a, a one hour walk for somebody like that is about 450 calories, which is insane. Really? That's a lot of calories. What? Yeah, That's crazy. Yeah, it's about 400 to 450 calories depending on your height and weight. And so, I mean, obviously that number changes depending on your height and weight, but that's an insane amount of calories. That's yeah. like a... That's like one junior chicken that you could eat extra every day. So That's I think wild. it's it's well worth the time if you want to get something meditative and, and easy and for exercise. Anyways, yeah. moving on to number two. Number two is know your purpose. Uh, 
knowing your pur- sense of purpose is worth up to apparently seven years of extra life expectancies. Uh, it goes by a number of different names. The Okinawans call it Ikigai and the Nikoians call it Plan de Vida. For both, it loosely translates to why do you wake up in the morning? Um, and I think this was just such an eye-opening thing because first of all, the figure seven years of extra life expecting, that's insane. It seems like something so mental and so seemingly unconnected to your physical health. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in reality, it results in seven years of extra life expectancy, which I, th- oh, I just thought was really, really cool to note. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, like you said, we wouldn't expect something like this to translate into physical health. But I mean, we've mm-hmm. seen how... Especially like these days when everybody's just quarantining and just confined to their homes, mm-hmm. the the toll that takes on your physical health manifests itself in the way, or sorry, the toll it takes on your psychological health and your mental health uh, manifests itself through your physical health. And like the, all those psychosomatic problems that we go through, they are so real. So, and if you so can real. have like yeah. a clear mind um, and apparently a clear sense of purpose, your entire being basically helps you out to achieve that. Like it, it allows itself to function at a higher and more optimal uh, rate just so that you can, you know, just go about your day just to help you achieve that purpose. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something, I mean, everybody's obsessed with it. And like everybody has a different word for it or a different ideology that's suited towards it. Um, some people, you know, they answer it with uh, religion. Some people answer it with you know the work that they're doing but i feel like some again like there's a lot of things that we have wrong here in the west and i think for one of those things is that we tend to have very egocentric ideas of what a purpose or what your purpose should be and you know for a lot of these populations most of the answers surrounding their purpose is geared around community or some sort of servitude toward their community and i Mm -hmm. I mean like that is I, i feel like there is 100% a kernel of truth in that for all people like regardless of whatever you do in this life it will affect other people in some way shape or form Mm -hmm. so I think absolutely I think that's beautiful yeah I think the sense of community is super super important and like I I will say that you know the individualism endemic to North America while it might have a ton of advantages one of the trade-offs of that is obviously the lessening of that community-based life. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to note that, you know, that community can come in a ton of different forms and we'll get into this later in the episode, but you know, that community can be, you know, religious community. um, You know, it can be um, a psychological or uh, ideological community. It doesn't necessarily need to be religious at all. And there's just so many ways in which you can get that, that I think it's super, super interesting. Um, And so here's some advice for all you guys too, you know, who are struggling to maybe find your purpose. Uh, an exercise that I do quite regularly um, at the end of every year is I really try and create an internal inventory of my life. So that includes articulating my values, my passions, my gifts, my talents, things that I like to do, things that I don't like to do. And then, you know, really thinking about how you can incorporate those skills in a way that will add meaning to your life and to the lives of others. So the key point there is like also lives of others, not just yourself, mm-hmm. you know. Okay, I'm I'm good at coding, so I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can. You know, while that might be a noble goal in and of itself to you, um, it won't necessarily increase your life expectancy as we've seen. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's just an interesting exercise and it's something worth doing. If you haven't ever listed out your values in the form of a journal or something like that, highly recommend doing it because it's super eye-opening. Yeah, reflection is one extremely key um, for helping you find your purpose and I think like for a lot of us like as we go through life we tend to identify areas that we hate or at the very least like we know that we don't want to be doing those things 
And if you're not engaging in that act of reflection, that's just a, a passive understanding. It's a passive realization. And if you're not writing that down or just making like kind of bringing it to the forefront of your consciousness, then you're not really actively narrowing down your vision. You know what I mean? Like the that that act of reflection is the, the is what helps you um, narrow that down and helps you kind of weed out all the distractions, um, all the things that are help uh, lending itself to you straying from your initial goal, and um, you know like figuring out what you don't want to do is almost just as important as f- figuring out what you do want to do because you know, our, life isn't just this one narrow trajectory that you follow right like we're going to be pivoting a bunch and even once you do find out what you do want what you enjoy doing realistically you're not going to confine yourself to just that right like and that's going to be if you do that it's going to be at the consequence of eventually building your life around something that you might force yourself to hate like you know once you start introducing those extrinsic motivators you start losing that interest intrinsic motivation that you had to do that thing so yeah yeah it all comes down to understanding yourself cool yeah for sure so the next of the power nine number three is downshifting so even people in the blue zones believe it or not experience stress and stress leads to chronic inflammation which is associated with every major age-related disease out there what the world's longest lived people have that we don't are routines that shed that stress so okinawans you know they take a few moments each day to remember their ancestors uh, uh, Adventists pray, Icarians take a nap, and my favorite, Sardinians have a happy hour. Um, <laughs> Definitely my favorite. Yeah, we man, whole. This is such a huge point because I know so many people, and I myself am complicit in this. We suck at downshifting. You know, we don't. We don't really downshift. We take breaks, quote unquote. I'm doing air quotes right now. We take breaks <laughs> from the work that we're supposed to be doing, and it's supposed to be a quick five-minute break, uh, and then we're supposed to get back into it. But you know, we end up we open up Twitter, we open up Instagram, maybe you pop open a YouTube video. That's not a real break. Yeah, that's not a real break. You're really not downshifting there because you're just kind of shifting your focus to something else, and you know, most of it is just for mind-numbing activities, and you're not giving your break or your brain a break, and that five-minute break turns into a half-hour break which you know turns into a one hour break and then you just feel guilty at the end of it so you don't even feel refreshed after that quick five minute break and that needs to change otherwise you're slowly little by little investing more interest um, into the amount of stress that you're compounding onto yourself yeah and i think one thing that's interesting to note from this rule too is that those breaks don't necessarily have to be big vacations. I think that, again, you know, with that all or nothing kind of attitude, Americans typically, you know, say like, oh, I'm going to grind for the next three weeks and then I take a two month vacation, you know, or something like that. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily a healthy way to look at life. Like you should have those breaks embedded into your kind of everyday mental health practices um, in the sense of, you know, maybe it's just like a little break where, you know, you brew coffee. And you're just, you know, vibing out with the coffee. No one's there. You don't have your phone. You're just, you're just chilling, you know, a little bit meditative. And that, that's like evidenced by, you know, the number of different ways that the, um, the blue zones kind of experience those little breaks as well. Like, you know, Seventh-day Adventists just take a couple minutes to pray. Ikarians just take a couple minutes to nap. It's not like they're taking a huge vacation and completely changing their life to become stress-free. It's just those little things that you do every day. So maybe for Mm -hmm. you, that just means, you know, every couple hours at work, you know, get up 
grab a tea, grab a coffee, just like, you know, relax for a little bit. Don't talk to anyone. Don't talk, don't look at your phone and then go back to work. It's, it's doesn't need to be a huge investment. So that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. Cool. So moving on to the next one, this is the 80% rule. Um, and you know, we're often told that the way to health is to eat this, to eat that, but you know, maybe we've just been eating way too much. Uh, I think, you know, the key point of this rule is that, uh, we should be eating about eight to 80% of our fullness rather than a hundred percent of our fullness and leaving about 20%, um, empty. And that's kind of the rule that, you know, a ton of different blue zones follow. Um, and there's a number of different sayings about it too. There's the, the, uh, the Confucian mantra, Hara Hachi Bu. Uh, I've totally butchered that pronunciation, um, <laughs> which is, you know, a mantra before meals that reminds Okinawans to stop eating when their stomach is 80% full. And that 20% gap between not being hungry and feeling full is pretty much the difference between losing weight and gaining it. And I think there's so many insights we can take from this. Like personally, I've noticed that I've always kind of assumed that, you know, if, if you're going to be full, you're going to be full. And if you're going to be hungry, you're going to be hungry. And so anytime I'm hungry, I take that as a cue to kind of eat as much as I can. And it's really, really cool to note that like, you know, hunger is more so an indicator of how soon you should eat than it is an indicator of how much you eat. And once I started thinking in terms of that, it, it was a huge paradigm shift for me to understand kind of like my relationship with food. Um, and I don't think enough people realize that. They're like, oh, I'm super hungry, so I'm gonna eat so much. And you hear that so often when you um, you starve yourself before a buffet and you're like, yeah, like I'm so hungry now, I can eat oh, so yeah. much. But oh, yeah. really like the amount you eat should never really change at a given meal. It should rather just be an indicator of how soon you should eat next. Uh, I thought that was super mm -hmm. powerful, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, the quick little life hack there is sometimes you're not actually hungry, you're just dehydrated. Yeah. And if you're ever just not sure, just down a quick glass of water. And hopefully that answer will make itself evident there because I've definitely been uh, I'm like, I'm generally a hydro homie. So I generally <laughs> yeah, drink a lot of a lot of water in the day. Yeah. And uh, that allows me to be a little more, I guess, clear headed when I'm actually feeling hungry versus when I'm actually just feeling dehydrated. Mm -hmm. And this is something I've been actually doing for a while. So I actually found out about the 80% rule, I want to say like maybe like a year or two ago. And obviously for some of the meals that I eat, you know, if I'm out with the boys or something like that, like I don't necessarily follow this. <laughs> but generally, um, I do try to adhere to this rule. And I've found that, you, you know, you, you can end up with like itis after a lot of meals. Oh, you know, yeah. you're, you get that round I belly. itis. Yeah. And you yeah. just want to just, you know, take a nice nap. And the nap itself is again like a nice bit of downshift but i feel just better about like just my like physical health um when i'm not just stuffing my face yeah uh and this is even things like just eating on a smaller plate will trick your brain into thinking you're getting fuller faster uh and just you know just leveraging things like that helped me to adhere to the 80 percent rule yeah yeah i think that's that's really important like you know there's a ton of hacks to kind of you know get better with this but i think one interesting thing to note as well is that um most people in the blue zones are kind of natural intermittent fasters uh it was found that you know most of them eat the majority of their bigger meals in the beginning of the day towards breakfast and lunch and they typically yeah. eat their last meal in the evening around like 5 or 6 p.m um and don't really eat a huge meal and then don't eat after that until the next morning so it's kind of curious because mm -hmm. the whole intermittent fasting craze has been you know like popping recently and it's, it's funny to see that a lot of people actually just do this naturally uh but i think that you know most people actually do this in reverse because they don't eat breakfast and then they 
you know, skip meals until like 2 p.m. and then pig out from like 2 to 10 p.m. And I think there's a ton of studies done that show eating earlier in the day rather than later is, is a lot better for you too. So just something to keep in yeah. mind as well. You know, on the topic of food is the next rule, the plant slant rule. And this one's really interesting. While most people in the blue zones only can eat meat, on, only a small amount of meat is eaten at, at each meal. Almost all of them eat a rich array of fresh fruits and vegetables, which are packed with disease-fighting nutrients. And the cornerstone of most centenarian diets is beets. Um, interestingly enough, not like, you know, broccoli or any of those super health acai bowl type foods, but rather just, you know, regular beans, fava beans, black beans, soy, and lentils. Uh, and you can eat meat if you want to, but typically they eat about a five ounce serving um, or less per day. That's, it's... Yeah, I didn't want to hear that one. That yeah. I was kind of bummed hearing that. You know, I I like I'm a I'm a carnivorous person. <laughs> I love my cuts of meat. Um, so that one did kind of hurt to hear a bit. But like one thing I definitely should try incorporating more is um I guess beans. Like I do not eat beans like that. Yeah. Um, it kind of baffled me again, like hearing that. But just generally, the the benefits of a plant based diet are well studied, and I it's just something I don't do enough. So. Um, I'll definitely incorporate that more into my diet, and I mean, I'm not. I don't think I'm gonna give up meat. I'm just gonna add more plant-based stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll see what kind of benefits that I'm able to observe. But on the topic of diet, so we kind of did mention this earlier in the episode, but some of the former blue zones are becoming Americanized now, and the American food culture that's taking over is just ne- drastically negatively impacting them. So imagine how bad the problem must be within the country responsible for this influence. Mm-hmm. And over the this is this is crazy, but like over the past three years, the average life expectancy in America dropped for the first time in a century. Wow. And That's yeah, it's crazy because like and you know, another measure is I, I think there was a rule for this, but I can't remember what it was called. Uh, but the average IQ is supposed to increase like a point or two year year over year, right? Really? But for uh, this, uh, this is a couple of years ago, so I don't know if this this trend has kind of curved back to adhere to it. Yeah. But it actually dropped again for the first time. No way. And like ever since that rule was like founded. So I don't know what the hell is happening. Like what's in the water over there in America? But like <laughs> things are not looking good. Yeah. And it's important to consider that this isn't a purely American phenomenon too. I'm sure similar things are happening in Canada. You know, we share a lot of cultural similarities yeah. friends down south so yeah. i think it's uh i mean luckily thank god we're separated by a border <laughs> uh but yeah I, I think some of the problems are definitely exacerbated there in the states and i i believe like this was dan uh, butner again that said this but he postulated that americans probably lose roughly six years of life expectancy eating the standard american diet compared to a blue zones diet wow in six years I, I mean like I don't know about you but I feel like six years you know, is a long six time. years of my life just for yeah like eating a little better that sounds pretty nice yeah and you know the quality of the life during those six years would be objectively better as well absolutely yeah no that's super interesting and like I don't know it just makes you think about how many fad diets there are out there and how simple like eating healthy really is like it's it's not about eating superfoods it's not about you know completely mm-hmm. renouncing meat either or never drinking it's just about being consistently good at and that's that's just seems to be like such a common theme of these um yeah and the crazy thing is that like thinking about it from an economic perspective roughly like the amount the percentage of their gdp that they spend on avoid, avoidable diseases every year 
which is about $3.7 trillion right now, keeps going up every year. So wow. going by that metric, it's a statistical certainty that eventually it'll bankrupt the country if the trend continues. Yeah. So something really has to be done. That's insane. And just taking a quick like bird's eye view to the way that they structure their diet in the blue zones, um, they only cook with roughly 20 ingredients. They tend to consume their food, as you mentioned, within an eight-hour window. Um, they tend to say something. This was a little, this is interesting. They tend to say something before their meals that's able to demarcate the like the just busy life and sitting down to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so something like a prayer right before their meal, right? To signify that we're here, we're in the moment, uh, and we're just vibing with this meal. Yeah. Um, and this is something I like a lot of us really suck with too. You know, we're constantly have our electronics there, which, you know, they don't have any electronics in their kitchen or generally they have a tendency not to do that. Um, they tend to eat with their families and they tend to cook instead of eating out, which is a ton of fun if you can do it. I highly recommend, especially if you can you know, bring some friends, friends or your girl or your man yeah. or your parents, just, you know, people into that. Great life skill nice to social have. Activity. Yeah, honestly, yeah. I don't understand how people go their entire lives without knowing how to cook. Not attacking anyone. <laughs> <My housemate. laughs> no, I'm joking. But, uh, you know, good, learning how to cook is such a life skill and it just allows you to be so much more open with, you know, what you eat and, and your relationship yeah. with food. So highly, highly recommend that. Uh, you know, on the note of food again, here's another food habit for number six. Wine at five. This is, you know, go. my personal favorite, you know, tip. Uh, but it's important to note kind of, you know, the the restrictions behind this and, and sort of, you know, the caveats that come with this. So, uh, you know, wine has plenty of healthy plant compounds and antioxidants uh, and has, you know, been proven to sh- reduce the risk of heart disease, certain cancers, and slow the progression of neurological disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And it seems like every other day we come across a study that says this and everyone's always like, oh, you know, I'm taking that red wine because, you know, it's good for you. But I think the key point here is to, you know, really take a step back and realize, that, okay, wine's good for you, but only in moderation. And that means limiting your daily intake to about like one to two glasses, a little bit less for women since they're typically a little bit, uh, you know, uh, lighter than men are, making sure that you drink that with a good meal. So not drinking on an empty stomach. And I think this is important to note because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, one glass of wine a day, let me make that up and let me drink that on a Friday night. And that is not, that is not how it works to be very, very clear. And I've definitely done that a few times in the past. And I have to say that that did not work for me either. Um, and so, yeah, just something to keep in mind. But it, it's also really cool to note that it's possible to enjoy these things responsibly. It's possible to, you know, have a great time with friends and family and, and really be involved uh, while still being healthy. Well, not just being healthy, but, you know, being extra healthy. Like this is something that can actually increase your your um, mm-hmm. life expectancy. That's really important. Yeah, it was super interesting to see that. I mean, so wine is that that tricky area where, you know, every other day it's like a study's coming out that says it's good for you. And then the next day a study comes out, oh, it's actually not good for you. And it's carcinogenic mm-hmm. or um, this and that. And, you know, it's nice to see a concrete example of, yes, you know, it's nice. It's okay to have a glass of wine. Yeah. And, you know, as they say, everything in moderation, including moderation. So maybe on that odd Friday, you had a stressful week. You just got to throw a couple extra back. It's going to be know, this that's... weekend for me. <laughs> You're welcome to join social distance. <laughs> let's do it. Like a quick FaceTime yeah. turn up. Yeah, let's do yeah. it. Yeah. Anyways, moving yeah. on to the next one, you think? I think I think most people have, have the relationship with alcohol, you know. Uh, yeah, and hopefully it's, a, hopefully it's a healthy one. <laughs> yeah, otherwise that's beyond our you know jurisdiction. We can't help you with that. <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, we we can't speak on that. Yeah. But 
Um, so number seven of nine, belonging. So all but five of the 263 centenarians that they interviewed belong to some faith-based community. And denomination doesn't seem to matter. It's just that the research shows that attending faith-based services around four times per month will add four to 14 years of life expectancy. Wow. And I, mean, I guess this comes again, it goes back to just the sense of belonging to a community mm-hmm. and having like feeling like um, you have people like a village, you know, that cares about you. Exactly. It's not just you. And it's again, like, it's something we generally lose out on in like the Western world, unless you do belong to a faith based community. Mm-hmm. But I think that sense of belonging is the important thing because, you know, like hopefully, like hopefully my family doesn't hear this, but I, you know, my family is very devout uh, in their beliefs in Catholicism. And yeah. I can't say that I necessarily share that sentiment. So I still go with them to church or like, I hopefully they don't hear this. Uh, yeah. I'm putting my life on the life. You the, are. You my are. life on the line for this episode. <laughs> Um, if your parents come in yeah, we but, might have to record video to see this world star fight real quick but uh. <laughs> <laughs> honestly I might just have to record a bunch tonight so you can release them posthumously because I don't know if I'll see the light of day again after this <laughs> oh, um, yeah but like I don't know like I, I attend these Sunday services with them but you know if that sense of belonging isn't there I don't think that really this applies to me like I don't think I'm actually going to be um, receiving those 4 to 14 years out of that yeah but I'm curious as to how far this goes because does does that faith aspect have to be a prerequisite to glean the benefits from this aspect or can just belonging to, you know, like a croquet club or like a Yu-Gi-Oh club, I don't know, something like that, like where you're just there under like a common goal. Yeah. If that's enough or it has to be some faith-based derivative. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, as times evolve and as, you know, phase change and things like that. I think it is important to consider like the civic based organizations too, not just the faith based organizations. So like, you know, not necessarily just an extracurricular organization, but something where mm-hmm. you're really involved in community building, whether it be you know, volunteering at a soup kitchen or, you know, being part of an organization that like teachers after school or like, you know, really being involved in your child's like school community or, you know, mm-hmm. um, just being involved at the community center, like things like that, I think are, definitely do a better job than necessarily just like a activity based thing. Although I'm sure that those could work as well. Cause you really feel like you're part of an identity, but you know, even mm-hmm. as, as interests evolve, like what if you just like play esports with your boys, like every Friday night you play league of legends. Like I feel like even that, you know, while it might not be the exact same as a faith-based community and maybe we don't have the data to support those claims yet. I think, it's still mm-hmm. better to have that form of community than to have no community at all. So just something to keep in mind. Yeah, I think you raised an important point, which with drawing a distinction between just like something you congregate for just some generic activity mm-hmm. versus something like, like you said, like serving at a soup kitchen or staying after school just to help tutor some kids. And I, I think, you know, purpose might tie into this as well. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're doing the latter, it feels like you're doing it in, for some sense of greater purpose. Um, and, you know, like, obviously for the activity-based things, your purpose is to have fun. But I don't think it provides as powerful of an impetus as um, having a purpose, which is to help educate children or to help serve the um, less fortunate. Mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? So yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe more studies need to be conducted. Definitely more studies to come. And that brings us yeah. to the next one, which actually relates a lot to kind of the belonging aspect of the faith-based groups, which is number, mm-hmm. we're on number seven, I think, right tribe. So no, number eight. Number oh, eight. We're, on, we're on number eight. Okay. We're almost yeah. done it. Um, so yeah, number seven is right tribe where, you know, the world's longest lived people have been found to be either born into or choose to create social circles that support healthy behaviors. Um, and this goes along with, you know, kind of the age old saying of you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You know, everyone from the Ik- Ikarians to the Okinawans build, you know, these sort of groups of, you know, three to ten friends, you know, whether it be five, six, seven friends that kind of commit to each other for life and are there to support each other through, you know, the the, the hardest the lowest lows and the highest highs and everything in mm-hmm. between um the rider dies exactly and it's, it's really interesting because you know research from things like the framingham studies show that you know smoking obesity happiness and even loneliness are contagious and so if all those things are contagious you know it kind of just supports this point that surrounding yourself with the right people and the right friends does a lot to add things to your life and that goes hand in hand with you know those food changes that we mentioned if all your friends eat healthy mm-hmm. you're much more likely to eat healthy which adds a ton onto your life if all your friends are active and you're the only one who's not active you're probably going to get peer pressured into being active at some point you know (laughs) all of us have been that friend that has been peer pressured into doing something that's either good or bad for us and i'm sure you know we can all agree that we prefer that the majority of things be good things so you know that's that's really really important that's the best kind of peer pressure exactly positive pressure get your shit together exactly yeah yeah Uh, it's crazy like if it's as it turns out if you can situate your life so that you're among the 20% of the happiest people and you're just surrounding yourself by those people, it's worth about six years of life expectancy compared to being in the least happy 20%. Wow. Just like six literally years. just being around happy people will just lend itself to that. And and first of all, like it's just ridiculous. Like we're throwing around um, numbers. Like these numbers are significant. Like six extra years of life. Like we're just throwing them around like it's nothing. Like they're just, you know, like some cards, like in a card game. Yeah. Um. Yeah, like, you know, I'll trade you two extra years for that burger or something, you know, some <laughs> shit like that. It's just ridiculous. So some of these changes are so easy on the surface to kind of incorporate on your life. You'd be literally doing yourself a disservice by not doing that. And as it turns out, so, you know, Okinawans have created what are known as Moais, I believe it's pronounced. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, like kind of building on what you're saying, are groups of five friends that are committed to each other for life. And... Um, so the founder of Blue Zones are trying to popularize the Moais in as many communities as he can find. Uh-huh. And there was this study conducted by Harvard a couple of years ago, which was the largest longitudinal study that was conducted on happiness. Mm-hmm. And it followed, I think it was like some, if I'm not mistaken, 700 adults or 700 people through 78 years of life. And it turned out that the single most important factor in determining how happy you were later in life was not how many friends you had, was not how much money you had. It was how many ride or die friends did you have? So not the quantity, but the quality of the friends um, and the people that you surrounded yourself with. What a way to word it. Because even if you only had two ride or dies and that's all you had in your life, you would be significantly happier than the people who have, you know, just 20 fair weather friends or 50 fair weather friends. I think it's an important lesson to learn early on in life. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think that's super, super important. And I'm very, very lucky to be in a, you know, in a friend group that I feel like supports me and like really looks out for me. So yeah, find yourself some good that's friends. That's real. Yeah. Real shit, real shit. <laughs> All right. Um, so we are here at the end of our journey at the last of the nine principles. 
and that is loved ones first. So successful centenarians in the blue zones put their families first, which is, you know, it, it seems like no surprise. And this means keeping aging parents and grandparents nearby or in the home. And it turns out it lowers the disease and mortality rates of children in the home as well. So it's this wow. mutual beneficial, um, like kind of symbiotic relationship that benefits everybody. Oh, it takes a village um, to raise a child type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, they commit to a life partner, which can add up to three years of life expectancy, as it turns out. So finding that shorty to cuff, you know, you got to do that early. <laughs> or making sure you just find that person, you know. Yeah. Um, and invest and they invest in their children with time and love so that, you know, they'll be more likely to care for you when the time comes as well. Yeah. So we come full circle with that. Yeah. It's interesting that you said the yeah. finding a shorty to cuff because actually in, uh, in North America, at least um, for women getting worried decreases your life expectancy and for men it increases your life expectancy and naturally women actually have you know a higher life expectancy than men yeah i think in canada it's about 82 for men and about 84 for women so you know maybe we're leeching a little bit but you know <laughs> yeah I think, I think that's the takeaway here yeah, yeah. The men are leeches men are leeches yeah. exactly but i think you know at the end of the day we'd all benefit from a healthy happy relationship so make sure Make sure that that's a decision you think a long time about. You know, that's all. That's all we'll say <laughs> here. Not yeah, and also, you know, yeah, going women. back to the individualistic aspect of you know North American life, like I don't think it's as common in you know Western circles to have you know those multifamily households and things like that as it is in the mm -hmm. East, where you know like right. everybody lives in the same household and they're you know packed rooms and like you know bunk beds and all that. And I think that that's that's really interesting, and it, and it really shows that like. You know, while you might have those conflicts with your family, like keeping them together and like really making sure that everyone feels cared for is really, really positive to life expectancy both ways. You know, like mm -hmm. like you mentioned, it, it decreases, you know, infant mortality and like child disease and things like that. But it also increases the life expectancy of those older people as well, you know, to see their kids and their yeah. grandkids. Yeah. And like additionally, you know, most of the people um, listening to our podcast right now are like within their like early to mid 20s generally. Yeah. And for most of us, you know, we're just on the cusp of embarking on the rest of our lives and for our family lives that traditionally means that you know this is going to be the last time you really like this is pretty much the end of the majority of the time you'll ever spend with your parents yeah in your life um after this it's going to be very minimal and you know maybe this could be a good reminder you know give them a call like check in on them ask them how they're doing show some love you know they spent I can't even imagine how many sleepless nights, time, energy, money on raising you. Absolutely. And and I know like I've been ungrateful a lot of times where, you know, I don't really keep that in mind. But, you know, it's just about reminding yourself of that, reminding yourself of their sacrifices. And I mean, it's not like you owe them anything because they did it out for you out of love. But, you know, showing them a little bit of gratitude, show them it was worth it and keep them in your hearts. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And those are the nine tips that we've, you know, or that, you know, not we, but that the researchers that work <laughs> <laughs> with the Blue Zones have really, really centered in on and, uh, you know, found out through their research. And hopefully you guys take a lot from this episode. I know I have. Uh, just to kind of wrap up the episode before the discussion yeah. is, it, one important point is that Blue Zones populations don't strive for longevity. So it's not like they're, like, meticulously crafting their environment just to be able to do this mm -hmm. it's just a product of their environment right so they're not obsessing over it they're just building up a healthy environment so that it just naturally happens that's a great point um so really it is non-striving in nature and you know lastly to make it to age 100 you really have to have won the genetic lottery 
but most of us have the capacity to make it well into our early 90s and largely without chronic disease, um, as you know, the Adventists demonstrate. Because you know, if they can do it in the states, I don't know how that again, like it's just baffled that they're it's like they're shooting themselves in the foot by living there, but they're still <laughs> able to, you know, it's still it, turn that around and make it a positive, exactly. Um, yeah, the average like person's life expectancy could very well increase by 10 to 12 years by adopting a blue zones lifestyle. So do yourself a favor and you know, pick up some of these tips. Awesome. Cool. And those are our tips. And thank you for those couple insights at the end, Damien. I think they're really, really impactful. And I'm just going to end it off with a quote that I think was really, really telling. It's by Charles Schultz, who is uh, the famous cartoonist of mm-hmm. the comic strip Peanuts. I don't know if you guys, the audience is all old enough to remember that, but I remember reading in the newspaper all once a time with my, with my dad. But uh, uh, anyways, um, the quote is, life is like a 10-speed bike. Most of us have gears we never use. So if this conversation about Blue Zones has taught you one thing, it's that, you know, you could be having all this extra time and the world is your oyster for those extra years. So why aren't you optimizing for that? You know, anyways, uh, just some just some thoughts to keep in mind. And thank you for tuning into this episode. And we hope you guys have a beautiful day. Ciao.